Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special podcast-only election edition, I speak with three candidates from the Science Party of Australia. I did ask the Greens, the Pirate Party and the Arts Party for interviews as well, but only the Pirate Party replied, and they haven't had time to talk to me. If the Australian election doesn't interest you, don't worry. A normal science-filled edition of Diffusion will be released straight after this one. You're getting two shows this week. In fact, I've been working three times as hard. I've also recorded a personal story for All The Best. Look for it next week at allthebestradio.com. I recorded two of these interviews weeks ago with the intention of broadcasting them in the regular edition of the show that's heard over the community radio network. But I got hit by equipment failure. The preamplifier I use to connect my microphone is an IK Multimedia iRig Pre and it started distorting voices. The voice of Brendan Clark talking about the National Broadband Network and James Coffey talking about energy policy are only distorted a little bit on the podcast as you'll hear, but if they've been broadcast through a radio station's compression and processing circuits, they would have been very hard to understand. You also hear James Jansen talk about why Australia needs a space agency, which was recorded on a lapel microphone as an emergency backup. So there's background noise. My replacement iRig Pre arrived this morning, and I'm using that right now. Because the election is on Saturday, which at the time of recording is tomorrow, you get the interviews today, while the content is still relevant. First up, here's Brendan Clark, candidate for the seat of Barara, here to talk about the National Broadband Network. I met him in the foyer of the Sydney Mechanics School of the Arts at a Meet the Candidates night. I began by asking him, what is the Science Party's communication policy? The main part of the communications policy is to build a proper NBN. So this is more equivalent to the vision of the NBN that Labor was pushing. So that's fibre to the home. We think that's probably the best model that you can get there. Now, understandably, the first question that people get asked is, how are you going to build fibre to everyone when um, Australia is such a big country? That's a misconception of the way the Liberals were trying to deconstruct the policy and make it look bad and expensive. So Labor's plan, which we're also supporting, and because it is probably the best plan, is a mix of satellite, which, as we can know for the news recently, we've actually launched one of our satellites into space to allow the rural community people to um, access fast internet. The other one is fixed wireless. So one of the arguments against the NBN was we should push everyone to wireless. Now, wireless is very, very good and it's a very, very fast evolving technology. However, it suffers from latency and bandwidth saturation. So if you want to push most fastest communication possible, you need to go to light because it has the highest frequency and bandwidth is equivalent to frequency. So by actually pushing fibre to the home for everyone, one of the things you do there is you actually increase bandwidth. And bandwidth is very, very important, as well as latency. is. Could you please define those two things? Okay. So bandwidth is how fast you can download something, right? So if you click on a web page and you want to download like a 200 megabyte file, bandwidth will refer to how fast you can download that file, right? Latency 
is basically the time between when you click on something and the time when it takes to deliver it to you. We can understand if we want to take a, a classic example. So if you want to deliver some boxes, say, between, uh, say, Sydney and Brisbane, you could stuff everything onto a car, right, and, and drive to, to Brisbane. And it would take you approximately 10 hours to get those boxes there, right? So obviously you can do that quite quickly. You can jump, load the boxes into your car, drive to Brisbane, takes you 10 hours. The actual bandwidth is very low because you can only stuff so much into your car. The latency is very, very, very low as well because it takes, it takes a small amount of time to load those boxes, jump in your car and drive. But if you want to do the equivalent thing and stuff, uh, say, 1,000 or 2,000 boxes, you would have high, very, very good latency, but you'd have very low bandwidth, so it would take a large number of trips to do. But you could stuff all that into a train. But to do a train, you have to basically then deal with warehouses and things like that. The bandwidth would be very, very big because you stuff a lot of boxes, but the latency, the time it takes you between when you do that to the first box arrives in, the, in the Brisbane would take a very, very long time. So that's a very, very equivalent of thing of what we're caring about. Now, why those things are important is a lot of technologies only happen if you've got low latency. The other thing that the, the Liberals were suggesting that we keep the copper to the home and where we can't do that, we have wireless on every street corner. There's problems with that. Yeah, so one of the big problems of copper is the fact that um, it's embedded in the ground and it's susceptible to rain. So if it rains, the pits fill up with water sometimes and that will basically cause a dropout in your connection. So one of the things about the, the NBN that um, is so important is the fact that it should be available 24 by 7 without downtime. Now, if every time it rains or you get a heavy rain and your network connection either drops out completely or slows down, that means that your, your faith in that ability or the technology is less and it means you can't do a lot of things. So businesses want to rely on that. They need that available all the time. So by moving to a fibre to, to the home or fibre to the business uh, premises, you guarantee high bandwidth, low latency and uh, almost 100% uptime. So one of the things that's happened with the move to, say, NBN under the previous model was that a lot of businesses were not buying business plans. They were using home plans for small businesses. That means they got a fast, reliable connection without paying business rates. That makes a lot of sense for very small businesses because they cannot afford the huge costs for doing business. The other thing that's most important about the, uh, the MBN model is ubiquitous internet. So now there's one big problem um, under the, the Liberals model of the MBN is you can no longer guarantee what speed you're going to get. So once you provision a NBN under the fibre to the node model, it depends on how far you're away from that node. So it means that your neighbour can get a much higher speed than you can. Now that's all great when you're actually living in a particular house and you know what you're going to get. But the, in the future, as we know that everyone's doing, is people move around a lot, right? So you want to make sure that you can actually get and rely on a high-speed connection and you cannot guarantee that anymore. So it's a lottery. Communications is very, very important. So as we go towards a, an information-led economy and move away from primary resource, the need for high-speed, low-latency communications is only going to increase. So we've now moved to streaming media, such as uh, Netflix as, as, as a common one. 
Netflix doesn't work very, very well at 4K. In Japan, just recently, they've introduced 8K television. So we cannot even talk about putting that onto the Australian network because it won't cut it. The other thing is we're moving to virtual reality. And as business rents in the city increase, governments are looking at a flexible workforce. That means people may be working from home. Now, the problem is if you cannot now guarantee that you can get a fast, reliable connection, then you're now disadvantaged in your job because you will not be able to guarantee the connection to your employer that you'll be able to work there. So that's really, really important that we actually talk about a fast, reliable connection for the future technologies. Brendan Clark, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Next up is James Jansen, leader of the Science Party and candidate for the New South Wales Senate. I spoke to James after the Orbit Oz Space Entrepreneurs Meetup and began by asking him why does Australia need a space agency? We're very interested in starting an Australian space agency. We think that we should be putting some of the additional funding to science and research that we've promised into creating a space agency so that we can be at the forefront of that industry. And what would this space agency be called? The agency will be called ASTRA, the Australian Space Technology Research Agency. And what are the benefits of having an agency as opposed to just letting industry get on with it? So a lot of space is just observational. We're talking about looking at different planets, different objects, stars, scientific research, which is hard to patent. And that's why we need to have a, a government-funded space agency that can perform scientific research and hence uh, push our science agency forward. Is it easier for Australia to cooperate with other spacefaring nations if we have an agency? Absolutely. I mean, we've been invited to uh, join the European Space Agency, which we have rejected on a number of occasions. But if we have our own resources, if we have our own funding commitments, then we can actually play on that same level playing field. So that means being involved in not just government agencies, but also being part of the SpaceX revolution that's happening in the United States. The Canadian Space Agency brings in huge amounts of money to the Canadian economy since they specialised in robotics and they built the Canada arm for the space shuttle. Is that something Australia could do? Absolutely. If we built our own space agency in Australia, we could be launching spacecraft from the Southern Hemisphere, which is an underpopulated area in terms of launch sites. So we actually have a geographic advantage by being here. So we can actually capture some of that market. The Science Party policy aims to get us to 3% of international space projects in 10 years and we think that's achievable and by being that leader in that area we can actually uh, grow our space agency further. American children have a very unique thing that many of them do and that's that they get to visit a space agency. They get to see rockets taking off, they get to meet astronauts, they get to learn about the technology that's being built there and they inspire a new generation of engineers. Just that alone, just that bit of inspiration when a child is young would be probably enough to justify a space agency on its own. But beyond that, we can use the technology that we develop in the space agency in other areas of our life. Space has shown that we've 
we've been able to use that technology that's come back from the space agency in our everyday lives. And it will only keep getting better if we invest more into space. One last question. Why is the science party space policy better than the pirate party or the arts party space policies? So the science party space policy has existed for longer than the arts party and the pirate party space policy. The reason why it's better is because we've actually inspired heaps of other people to do it. So, and we think it's a good thing that other parties are copying us. In fact, when we released our space policy, there was a member of the Labor Party who volunteered for us at the North Sydney by-election. He took it back to his state conference and they had a session called, Should Australia Have a Space Agency? So without even doing any work in government, we're actually having an impact on the organisations that can make these changes. So that's why I think that we've been very unique in this situation. We've actually not just inspired people, but we've inspired parties to take on a space policy. The, the reason why we're better than the other parties is because we're not being very prescriptive about what we do. We want to create a space agency. We want to take the results of three separate reports into investigating a space agency in Australia, put that information together with experts in the field and come up with a plan to create an Australian space agency. We don't want to be prescriptive. We want to make sure that the best space agency gets built. Well, James Jansen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And finally, here's James Coffey, candidate for the seat of North Sydney. This is a long interview for a complex subject. I met him in the foyer of the Sydney Mechanics School of the Arts after the Meet the Candidates night. A warning, I believe James has the science wrong. He talks about nuclear waste being drained of its energy in a fast breeder nuclear reactor, like a battery running out of charge. In reality, the nuclear waste is bombarded with high energy radiation until it transmutes into shorter, half-life, but enormously more poisonous material. I spoke to James about all of this before the interview, but as you'll hear, we disagree. I began by asking him, what is the Science Party's energy policy? Yes, so the Science Party's energy policy is for emissions trading, for renewables, and for research into fission and fusion nuclear power. Which model of emissions trading does the Science Party support? It, so the emissions trading for the Science Party is about a market-based price of carbon so that we can incent the market to move away from carbon intensive energy sources. Uh, that's both in energy production but also in there are other sources of greenhouse gases outside of just um, you know burning coal as an example. So the, the policy is to raise revenue from, from industries that are uh, creating carbon dioxide out output um, but also allow them to buy offsets from the market where people have already done the move away. So whenever anyone's building uh, emission, low emission uh, power, they're going to have credits, they can make money for them and it, it helps incent the market on the uh, supply side of a cleaner energy as well because they're, going, they're getting a, benefit, a market benefit for providing clean energy over and above just selling that energy to consumers or, or to businesses. And is this the main policy to address climate change? Yeah, it's, it's one, um, you know, climate change is, is primarily around, around reducing carbon dioxide emissions, but there are other, obviously, uh, other greenhouse gases that, that need to be addre uh, addressed as well. 
and you can do that in emissions trading. You can have different taxes for different gases, etc. Uh, creating a market incentive for people to, uh, businesses and consumers to move away from in those intensive uh, emission uh, production sources is important. But you also need to do um, research, uh, and uh, you know you need to allow the market freedom of action to to develop that. We want actually to have multiple bets going. Um, Wind has done quite well. If you look at South Australia, um, they've got a huge installed capacity of wind. There's a little kicker to that. All the variable renewals today need backup, and in, in a, unless you have hydro, um, your backup is usually fossil fuels. It's mostly gas, and so if you look at South Australia, they've got twice as much gas installed capacity as they do wind, uh, and they're also buying uh, dirty energy from the brown coal power uh, stations in Victoria through their interconnection. Um, so, you know, renewables are great, but they today they do not have um, the ability to completely displace coal, and the coal is really the, the main issue that we have to address when it comes to the uh, energy system, um, electricity uh, system. In, in all of these issues, I mean, there is no zero risk. You know, wind takes up land, solar takes up land, it, it has an impact on the environment, hydroelectricity has a fairly big impact. I don't think we would build the snowy hydro scheme today because that would be um, you know, an environmental outcry. It wouldn't happen today. Um, but we have to look at all of these energy sources, um, take all of their advantages, offset their, their risks and their disadvantages so that we can get a good outcome for, for um, you know, cost and, and environmental protection in, in forms of low emissions. Renewables are good. Um, we should do more of them, but they are not going to replace coal. And if they, uh, to any large extent, we always have coal um, until we either solve um, long-term cheap energy storage. Um, you know, we're a long way from that. We're talking sort of factor of 10x if you want to store uh, variable renewables and batteries today um, in terms of cost. So they're not they're not scalable economically. They might get there, and that might be a great solution in the future. But today, uh, we should be definitely R&Ding that. We should definitely be investing in that. But um, you know, today, it's not an answer. You can't just simply say wind and solar. We just buy more of that and build more of that. Um, it will, and it, the coal plants will disappear. That's not how the the grid works, and that's not how, what our requirements would be in a, in a modern economy. Um, more importantly, however, um, we can afford it in a rich country to do that. The third world, which is going to pull itself out of poverty by using energy, um, they're going to use coal as well. So it's not an imperative just about a, the Australian story here. It's, an, it's a global story. And we need to, as an exporter of coal, we need to be thinking about what energy those, uh, those people in the third world are going to need um, as well. And on to the nuclear research. So you want to do research into fission and fusion power. Yes, that's correct. Um, you know, it's actually, you know, f f fission's actually quite well understood. It's a technology that's been around a long, uh, a long time. There are uh, a number of startups in the U.S. that are, um, and in fact, uh, two of them have funding from the Department of Energy in the United States to do research. I think what we would like to see is some of that research being done here in Australia, um, because you know, the, the reality is, we're, you know, unless someone solves. Um, energy storage in a really cheap and an amazing way. Um, fission is likely to be part of any low carbon uh, grid today. If you look at Ontario and Canada, they've got rid of all their coal now. 
they're about 50-60% of the generating capacity is, is, is fission. Um, the, the French have been low carbon since the, the mid-80s um, and have lower carbon and cheaper energy than the, the Germans who have been going into renewables. Um, so there's lots of learnings from the German uh, case there. Um, we, you know, we need to um, we need to do renewables, and renewables are a good source, but they can't get rid of coal, and that's the main problem that we have to deal with is the coal. And so, you know, fission is, is a way to do that. Fusion, um, I think, is probably the long-term solution to the world's energy needs. It's very difficult. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned that you're a physicist, and um, we've spent a lot of money on fusion, and it's one of those things. It's always 50, 50 years away. Uh, it's sort of like maglev trains and um, what I think the Hyperloop will be. You know, it's a great idea, but really, really hard, you know. Um, but we should back ourselves to get there. But in the meantime, we need to displace coal. Coal kills, you know, just giving you some examples of why it's important that we look at, at fission. It's not, it's not just simply greenhouse gas, actually. People die, millions of people die every year from coal, from burning, and we export that. We're exporting, exporting death. Not forget, forget about uh, greenhouse gas emissions for even a moment, because there is a lot of, um, it's a very complex discussion and it's very hard for people to get, you know, the long-term risks of greenhouse gases, which is certainly there and we certainly have an impact on that. But short-term, um, coal kills 600,000 people in China last year, millions around the world. Burning biofuels like wood and dung for your heating in Africa, as an example, kills 4 million people in Africa. We need cheap, abundant, reliable energy. Fission today is exactly that source of power. That's exactly what it does. So what are you going to do with the waste given that Lucas Heights spent decades on research for a safe way to eliminate waste? Mm. They came up with Senrock and it failed mm. and there's no replacement. Yeah, so waste um, certainly has been an issue. It's really interesting if you look at uranium. Um, we export about 10,000 tonnes of uranium a year and we export something like 180 billion tonnes of coal. Now, if you look at the energy that we uh, export, it, it's about a third is attributed to only those 10,000 tonnes of uranium yellowcake. Uh, so it's like a factor of a million more energy dense than coal. Um, and when you put that in a light water reactor, which is what the majority of today's reactors are, generating power around the world, you only burn up about 1% of, uh, of the energy content of that uranium, and that's where your waste primarily comes from. Um, there is a bit of transmutation, obviously, and you get byproducts that, that, that do have uh, long half-lives. Half Funny thing about long half-lives is long half-life actually means low activity because it's got a long half-life. Very short-lived radioisotopes are very reactive, like highly uh, radio em emitters because they, they, they're decaying, and so there's lots of activity. Um, but in terms of dealing with that, and the, and the Russians are actually doing this now, in fact, they're burning their plutonium weapons uh, stocks. Um, so a fast reactor can actually burn waste. Uh, it can burn multiple types of waste. And you can really, with a, with a fast uh, reactor or a burner reactor, you can actually get most of your radioactive uh, half-life down to sub, you know, 300 years. Yeah, for, for the vast majority, and just the fact that you're going to get more burn-up of, uh, of the fuel, like if you can burn the, the other 99% that you're not, well, that's stuff that's not going to be radioactive because you've taken the power out of that and now that is not um, radioactive uh, material for the most part. You know, there will be some, but, you know, the, the breakdown, um, you know, if you, if you extract the energy in the reactor, it's not sitting out pushing radioactive energy into the environment somewhere else.
But the problem is the shorter the half-life, have you said, the more radioactive and the more dangerous it is. So as you mm. breed it, you make, you're making something that's enormously toxic for hundreds of years. Well, no, you, it's less because you're burning more of it. So yes, it's, it's reactive, but it's, uh, it, 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 it's really, I mean, we have, uh, I think there's probably 100 radio, uh, reactors in the US operating. Um, there's probably 300 or so around the world when you take everything uh, into account. And waste is not, the, uh, is not the issue that it's made out to be. It is an issue, it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be risk managed. But it is not, uh, not long-term. In fact, there's, if you take all the waste that we've got in storage today and you put that in a fast reactor, you've got 72 years of world global energy demand just locked up in the waste. Okay, so we can run the entire world's energy demands without coal or even renewables, everything, on just the waste we have today. That's without mining anything. It is an incredible store of energy uh, in, in today's, uh, what we call inverted commas, waste. It's really just free power. And so why the focus on thorium in the policy? Look, I think there's a lot of interesting research. Um, it's one of those technologies that got um, shelved um, because it didn't meet the United States um, development into into nuclear weapons in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, there's a lot of interest there. Um, the, the, the main reason why you would want to look at thorium is that, um, I mean, you don't, and, and I think you mentioned this before, uh, we, we were talking before the interview, you know, it's, it's, thorium isn't what you're actually burning, you're turning it into uranium. Um, uh, it just so happens that if you look at the two fuels that we can use in a fission process, one is thorium and one is uranium. And thorium is a lot more abundant uh, than uh, uranium. Uh, so, you know, if we did go and do a uranium power, you know, if we get away from just using the, the uranium that's out there, we can go and we can burn that for, you know, maybe hundreds of years. You know, if you burn, if you, if you do better than light water reactor at 1%, you move to sort of 100% burn up. Um, but for, um, uh, for thorium, that's, that's another thousand years worth of energy in thorium. So that's why thorium would be an interesting. You know, the Indians are already doing it with solid fuel reactors. Um, they're already building that out. The, uh, the Chinese are doing a lot of research. In fact, they, the, the Chinese took all of the research from the Americans that they did in the 60s and the 70s, and now they're developing that out as their own intellectual property. So I really I see the benefit here for Australia is, you know, there are lots of risks, but this is a problem that the world will do this with or without us. And we have a unique opportunity with our, um, with our resources of thorium and uranium, which are the largest in the world for both of those, um, to, to play a more value added role in energy, clean energy for the world, than just shipping minerals overseas on ships. We can do a lot more than that. And that's why we'd like to look at thorium and, you know, and uranium. And the uranium process is already quite well known, so we don't really need to do a hell of a lot of research on that. Um, but there's, you know, you know, it needs it needs money and it needs time and it needs uh, research and it needs smart people and engineers and there's a whole uh, ecosystem of value that we can add around uh, research and into power production. Given that Australia has so much in terms of hot rocks and wind and solar and just about any renewable energy you mention, why would we not spend money on that instead of things like non-renewable sources that are also poisonous in their pollution? Mm, sure, I mean, it's a good question. Um, the basic fact is, uh, so wind and solar, um, you can't do any more than about 30% of your grid with wind and solar. Um, you hit a limit um, in production, you need baseload, um, and you need, um, and you need to, to, to 
have, if you, even if you can at peaks produce amazing amounts of wind and solar, you always have backup and that backup, unless it's fission, is going to be fossil fuel. That's the reality there. So, you know, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incorrect argument to state that wind and solar, and then maybe you can add hydro in. Hydro's a bad impact on the environment, um, you know, so we don't really want to go around building more hydro. It's great, but, um, you know, it does have an impact as well. It's not, it's not perfect. Um, geothermal, you know, it's, it's expensive, um, and, you know, again, it has an impact on the land when you start uh, digging through um, rocks and, you know, if you don't like coal seam gas, why would you, why is geothermal any better? In fact, it's very funny, right? Geothermal is actually, a, a, it's a fission reaction. Two thirds of the world's, uh, of the, the globe's core, the energy in that, yeah, that, that's coming from that magma, that's been generated by radioactive decay of thorium and uranium. <laughs> the, the center of our planet is a fission reactor and the sun's a big fusion reactor. Fission and fusion are the densest ways for us to produce energy and density means low impact on the environment. It means that we can do things in small areas uh, and we can provide uh, reliable energy close to where it's needed, not disperse energy often far away from where people live and try and, you know, ship that to, to, to where people need to use it. Dispatchability is quite important, so, you know, that's why. We need to be doing all these things. It's not an end-all. I think a lot of the argument comes down to people thinking, well, it's renewables or it's fission. It's not. It's both. Um, and it's fusion and research. We need to be doing all these. It's a big problem. It needs multiple bets um, for us to be able to solve it um, sensibly and not risk ourselves up and thinking one or two technologies are going to be solve the day. That's just too risky for, in my mind, and that's why we need to have multiple approaches all at once. Thank you very much for, the, for your time, and uh, I look forward to uh, you know, representing uh, the people of North Sydney in the upcoming election. Well, James Coffey, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks to Brendan Clark, James Coffey, and James Jansen of the Science Party for making time to speak with me during an election. Vote early and vote often. And that's all for me from this bonus episode of Diffusion. Just wait several hours and you'll get one chock full of science instead of politics. Send your contributions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Have a look at the new refurbished Patreon page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio, where it no longer only has a $50 a month donation. You can now make as little as a dollar. This episode is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm, but totally missed the community radio network. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com, and check the website for links and photos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering in just a few more hours on Diffusion Science Radio.